What sorrow or difficulty are you facing today? What trial or frustration or suffering is on your mind? Is it all-consuming? Is it robbing you of sleep as it percolates in the mind and keeps you up at night? Your trials, brothers and sisters, are not without God's love and care. He has not abandoned you to the suffering you face, but instead he leads you through that difficulty like, like a loving father who leads a child through the bumps and tumbles and scrapes that come with learning to ride a bike. He's like a loving father who encourages uh, you to, to, through all the squeaks and squeals and horrible noises that precede playing music well on an instrument. He's like a loving father who often says no to your selfish desires and holds them back to you, back from you, like holding back ice cream for breakfast God's plans for us in trial and tribulation are always a prequel to something better, to a greater joy. Even if you're experiencing painful consequences because of stupid mistakes that you made, this discipline is to bring you to a greater faithfulness, to a greater obedience to Christ. The hard times lead to better times in Jesus Christ. Sorrow is the prequel to joy in Christ. Even... uh, this week, as we have been preparing our house to move in, and we've been running around and uh, we've been making preparations, and we need to paint some walls, and so we've been going around and covering up holes and sanding and trying to smooth things out. But Laura said, "It looks horrible. It, it looks worse than when we began, because in order for us to get through to the other end." to the beautiful, lovely, painted walls that we are longing for, uh, we have to go through the ugliness of all the patches on the walls and the roughness and because we have to, uh, we have to go through the, the difficulty to get to the beautiful finished product. And so it is like that for us in our lives, that there is trial and trouble and tribulation, but it is on the road to something better. Sorrow leads to joy. For the 12 disciples of Jesus, they were about to face great sorrow, as Jesus is tipping off in this passage. It's a sorrow that they didn't foresee coming, but Jesus knows what's in store for them. And in our passage today, Jesus is preparing them to face this difficulty and to face it with comfort, to know that it's going to be hard and it's going to be sad, but to be comforted in the midst of their grief. Their sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus has been giving these guys, as, as Adam alluded to, they've been getting a last-minute download of all they need to know about life as disciples of Jesus, because Jesus is going away. But Jesus wants them to know that this isn't by accident. He's not, he's not disappearing by accident. Jesus going away is part of the plan. It's part of the plan. And there are upsides to Jesus going away not the least of which is that he will send the Holy Spirit to help the disciples of Jesus. And one of the main things that the disciples of Jesus will do is to help the disciples know the truth, to understand and remember the teaching of Jesus. And although Jesus has been repeatedly warning them that he has to go away from them, it seems it's only now starting to sink in. 
So Jesus encourages them that although his departure is a sad thing, it's a grief, it's actually a prequel to joy, to great joy. The joy that is not just a consolation prize, as if it was like, well, you've got a bad luck, bad, bad turn of events in here, we'll give you a little bit of joy to kind of make up for it. No, no, this, this is a great, beautiful, full joy that comes to his disciples. It's full joy brought by the one who can take on the world and win, the one who can unbecome the world. Now, there are three parts to this, this passage that we're looking at today. The first part is that there is joy through sorrow. Joy through sorrow. If you've spent much time working your way, reading through the Gospels, uh, kids, do you remember what the Gospels are? Does anybody know what the Gospels are? <laughs> I'll give you a clue. It starts with Matthew. That's right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four records of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as you read through the Gospels, where Jesus is interacting with his disciples and with the Pharisees and whoever else that he comes across along the way, you will see that Jesus is notoriously hard to nail down. He will not be backed into a rhetorical corner and he will often sidestep direct questioning and instead answer the issue behind the question. Sometimes Jesus just told parables without any explanation. The closest 12 of those disciples that spent their most of their time with him, they were familiar with this pattern and they often had to ask Jesus for explanation and, and they had to follow up with him so they could understand what was going on. But even then, they didn't always get it. On this particular night of Jesus' betrayal, the disciples are once again wondering about the meaning of Jesus' words. And this time, it's in relation to him going away. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does it mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Because I'm going to the Father. Oh, sorry, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus is pretty clear about the fact that he's going away. You'll see me no more. But he also says this, a little while you will see me and then you won't see me and then you'll see me. Like, it's like, are you going away or not? And how long is a little while? The disciples are trying to figure this out. Does it mean that Jesus is going on a short journey without them and they will expect him back soon? Or does it mean that he will be gone for a long time but he's using a euphemism, you know, for a little while? How does this fit with Jesus going to the Father? If he's, does it mean he's going to the Father and then he's coming back after a little while? Jesus knows their minds, so he responds. He says, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another about what I meant when I said, in a little while, you'll see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And so Jesus doesn't directly answer the question yet again. But he tells them what to expect. 
He tips them off to what's coming without giving them the full details. In that moment, the, the mission of Jesus was still somewhat shrouded in mystery. He's given key tidbits of information that have been revealed, but not enough to put all the pieces together yet. Look, if you, if you have a, a slick plan to, uh, if you're out on, the, out on the field and your team is facing off another team and you've got a wonderful plan to be able to take on the other guys and win, you don't go and tell them what your plan is because then they'll be able to counter your plan. And similarly, Jesus, while he's in his earthly ministry, walking around with the disciples, he keeps his cards pretty close to the chest. He reveals lots of stuff but he doesn't reveal all the exact things that you need to know to put all the pieces together. That comes later. And we t- experience the benefit of that. And we, we probably don't realize just how uh, much better off we are with the hindsight of the crucifixion. But for now, Jesus keeps the details under wraps. But the time would soon come when the disciples would experience the fulfillment of these words. Jesus would be arrested by the Jewish authorities. That includes the elders and the chief priests. They would take him away and the disciples would be scattered. Jesus was going to be hastily put on trial in a bit of a kangaroo court with false witnesses who, and they convict him falsely on the charge of, bap, of um, blasphemy. When he was falsely found guilty by blasphemy, he was sent off to the Roman governor's house because the Jewish leaders in that time didn't have the authority to put anybody to death. So they had to get permission from the Roman governor, Pilate. The Romans, of course, were the occupying force in their country at that time. Under that occupation, they had to convince Pilate to let them kill this guy. And so while Jesus is there at Pilate's residence, he's flogged, and then there's a bit of a to and fro where Jesus gets sent over to Herod, because Pilate can't find any reason to to execute him, and then he's brought back because Herod can't find any reason really to execute him. And so Pilate kind of just gives in to the demands of the Jewish leaders to keep peace, even though he can't find a reason to execute him. He gives in and he hands Jesus over to be executed by crucifixion. And then Jesus is nailed to a cross with his hands and his feet and he is lifted up so that he hung there, held up by the nails in his wounds after having been scourged, after having a crown of thorns forced upon his head. And there, after a day exposed to the world, he died. He gave up his spirit and died. And his disciples saw him no more. After a little while, he went away. And all that was left was his lifeless body. So they took down his body and they put it in a tomb. And the disciples were devastated. They had lost their mentor, their teacher, their friend. They had lost the one who had taught them the words of God and opened their eyes to so much. They had lost the one that they had hoped would restore the fortunes of Israel. So there was sorrow, there was mourning, and there was tears. And then that was compounded by the fact that many of them rejected Jesus. Peter being a great example, of a bad example, really. 
who when he was asked, oh, are you one of Jesus' disciples? He said, no, no. And even called down curses on his head in trying to reject any knowledge of being connected to Jesus. They were scattered. They felt abandoned. There was grief and sorrow for life lost and dreams crushed. But their sorrow was not to last. On the third day after his death, Jesus returned. He took up his body and he walked among them. He came back to life and the tomb was empty. And then over the course of 40 days, he came and went among his disciples and saw them regularly, teaching them and to explaining to them the kingdom of God. He went and taught them all about the Father and about how everything fit together. You remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus before they realized that Jesus had come back to life. They were walking and talking and thinking about all that had happened. And Jesus came and walked with them and explained to them everything from the beginning of the scriptures and how it was all to come to a great culmination, all come to fruition in Jesus Christ. It was all about Jesus and it was all part of the plan for him to die. So their sorrow at Jesus' departure now turned to joy, joy that he had risen from the dead and returned to them and was with them, but not only that Jesus had come back to see them, but that through his death, He had won salvation for his people. It was joy that he had won a victory over death, that he was resurrected. And now there was great joy in the fact that every disciple of Jesus has this path open to them, this path of entering into death and yet being resurrected and enjoying resurrection with God forever. His sorrow at his going had meant the joy of being redeemed. We are no longer captives under sin. His sorrow of going had meant the joy of having our sin atoned for. It is a great sadness that Christ had to go to the cross to atone for sin. In some sense, we feel like it should have never happened. But it was our sin that sent him there. And this is a great sorrow when we consider that his suffering was because we put him there. He wanted to deal with your sin. But there's no way that you could have dealt with it by yourself. So he had to step into that human body and walk to that cross and to submit to that torture on your behalf. And this is why we call Good Friday good, because even though it was the killing of the Son of God, it was the death that brings life to all God's people. Jesus going away was the best thing that happened to the disciples, because it meant they were now united with God. They had salvation. And sure, they weren't freed from their Roman overlords, but they were freed from the greater tyrants of Satan, sin and death. Their sorrow was short-lived because it gave way to greater joy. And back in our passage, Jesus describes these future events that were about to take place like a childbirth, a hard and painful event that gives way to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. Just ask Cheryl. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy 
that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. The pain that they were about to face of the betrayal, the trial, the death of Christ, and their own sin and rejection in the midst of that, would soon become rejoicing. And a rejoicing that could not be taken away because it is not secured in anything in this world. It is joy that is secured with Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God. That joy cannot be taken away, no matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what other people do to us. It is joy secured beyond this life. And you can have this joy too if you are in Jesus Christ. If you are found in Him. If you submit to Him. If you trust in Him. He will save you from your sins. He will save you from your shame. You must trust Him and believe in Him and become loyal to Him. And your sorrows will become joy. Your sorrow at being separated from God and alone in the world can turn to joy at being welcomed into God's family. Your sorrow at thinking about the weight of all the, of the bad that you have done, all of the guilt that sits on your shoulders because of the bad choices you have made, of the people you have hurt, it can turn into joy at knowing that it is dealt with at the cross. It's an awful sorrow that knowing that Jesus needed to die, yet it is the most joyful of deaths because it brings life. And no one can take it away. In our next section, we see that joy also comes through prayer. Joy comes after sorrow, though the grief and loss of death is great. The great joy is that death is defeated. Yet, yet Jesus has more joy for his people. Joy is not only anchored in salvation, one for us, guaranteeing us a future joy, a future hope, but Jesus provides joy in the here and now. Jesus provides joy in the here and now. But how does this joy come? Jesus says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and, what does that say? Your joy will be complete. Or some translations will say, your joy will be full. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, the disciples will not need to ask Jesus questions anymore. The questions they have been asking, what does this mean, what does this mean? Because the Holy Spirit will, will help them understand. You'll no longer ask Jesus to explain these things. Because they will know and they will see and understand. The Holy Spirit will guide them into all truth. Their eyes will be opened and they'll be able to see how it all fits together. But even so, they can ask and they should ask God to still provide for their needs. But he says to ask in Jesus' name. Once again, remember that it's very ordinary for Christians to pray in Jesus' name. We do it all the time. It's our little formula at the end of our prayers. But before Jesus died, they didn't pray in Jesus' name. It would have been considered heretical to, to pray in the name of another person. And yet here is Jesus saying, ask God in my name. Ask God 
in my name. He is saying that he is the mediator between God and man. But asking in God's name, asking in Jesus' name, is not a magic formula to get what you want. I think a great way of explaining this is like when sometimes, you know, maybe somebody asks you to pick something up on their behalf at the, at the, at the shop. You know, sometimes uh, I have to go, uh, I'm using another example of Laura and I, uh, Laura gets some photos printed down at Hardly Normal and I've got to go and pick them up, all right? And so they're in her name and I need to go into the shop and pick them up. I have to invoke her name and say, I'm here to pick up Laura's photos. And that's how they know that I'm here on Laura's behalf. I'm asking for something in her name. But that doesn't give me permission to ask for anything in her name. I'm asking for what has been secured for. She's got something, she's purchased it, and it's there waiting. I could go and pick it up. But I can't just walk in there and say, oh, well, uh, in Laura's name, I'll have that and that and that as well. And it's the same for us in Christ, that Christ has secured so much for us and we can ask for it in Jesus' name. We come and we say we're here because Jesus has said we can come here and gather these things and take this to receive it from the hand of God. And so that's why we can't just invoke Jesus' name and expect to get whatever we want. We, we invoke Jesus' name to get what he has promised for us. And so I encourage you to scour the scriptures and find what Jesus has promised for you so that you can go and ask for them from God in Jesus' name. But what are some of the things that Jesus has promised for us, has guaranteed for us? Well, one of the great things is joy. Are you lacking in joy? Then go and ask for it, that you may receive it. Go and ask for the Holy Spirit. Go and ask for salvation. If you stand outside Christ, go and ask and receive eternal life. Ask for and receive forgiveness and redemption. I encourage you to go and look in the scriptures and look and see if you can find all the treasures there that Christ has for you, if you would only ask for them. Ask and you will receive. And Jesus goes on. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Soon enough, all would become plain to the disciples that through Jesus' post-resurrection teaching when he's with them in those 40 days, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit in them, illuminating what Jesus has said and illuminating the Old Testament that they had. And once they understood, this message was proclaimed to the world. And they even proclaimed to us down to this day. We have the teaching of Jesus explained to us by the apostles in our hands every time we pick up the Bible. In that day, we will pray in Jesus' name because it will be abundantly clear that he is God incarnate and our mediator. But he's not a mediator that's trying to get on God's good side, you see? See how he says, you know, it's, I won't ask the Father on your behalf. It's not like, um, 
kids, you know, you might ask mum for something and mum says, oh, we'll have to wait until dad gets home and then we'll ask dad. You know, Jesus isn't sitting around kind of waiting for a chance to ask God for something on our behalf. No, when we ask God hears, God and the Son, God the Father and God the Son are united, they're together, they're on the same mission. The children of God are the ones who belong to Jesus Christ. And so when we ask, it's not as though we need Jesus to kind of hear the message and pass it along. God himself, God the Father, hears us. The Father himself loves those who love Jesus and believe in him. God the Father, God the Son are united in purpose and mission. To have one is to have the other. There is no disunity or discontinuity between them. And so we can speak and ask the Father in Jesus' name. It's interesting here how he says, uh, Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I have come from God. And so it's because we have believed and trusted in, in Jesus that we receive the love of the Father. But other parts of the scripture, we will read things like, he, we love because he first loved us. There's almost like this, uh, this, this little loop of love. He loved us first, and so we loved him, which means he loves us. It is, this, it is, it is a reciprocal thing, a mutual thing, like the friendships and relationships that we share with one another. It goes both ways. Because the Father loves us in Christ Jesus, we can have the confidence to ask of Him and to receive from Him and have full joy. Lastly, this passage teaches us that we can have peace through Christ. Peace through Christ. Despite Jesus' plans to be unseen and then seen again, Jesus is still going to go away more long term he's going to go back to the father he is the eternal son of god through whom the world was made and he came from the father to the earth but now he's going back again and he says as much to the disciples i came from the father and entered the world now i am leaving the world and going back to the father then jesus disciples said now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. So the disciples feel like they finally get a moment of clarity that Jesus is finally being straight with them. Jesus is definitely making it clear that he has come from God and now he's going back again. And the fact that he answered their questions before they asked them is a good sign that he knows all things, that he knows what's going on. And they have seen with their own eyes the, the things that have unfolded before them over the course of uh, a, a few years and what he has taught them. And now it is becoming abundantly clear, even with Jesus' clear statement, I came from the Father, I'm going back again. He is God the Son, who's come from out of the world into the world. And I'm sure that they had some pretty clear inclinations that this is the way things were. But the way that John portrays it is that it's though it's finally all the pieces are coming together in these final moments before Jesus is about to be taken up from the earth. They have no doubt now. It's fully and finally uh, sunk in that they, Jesus is indeed from God. 
And like us who are born, and when we are, we, our, our soul, our, our body, our person, we are created in a moment in time. But not Jesus. Even though he has taken on a spiritual, uh, sorry, has taken on a physical body, he is one who has come from out of time into the world. He is from eternity past with God the Father. But he entered into the world to save us. Jesus says, you believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. At this crucial moment when faith of the disciples is secured, the next thing Jesus says is a warning. You will be scattered. It's a prediction. Time is coming and has now come when you will be scattered. This is the hour that we've been looking forward to across the pages of John. The hour, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet come. The hour is upon them. And it is an hour where they will be scattered. At his arrest, the disciples flee. They leave him alone. As we said before, Peter rejects Jesus. Yet Jesus was not alone, alone. He had the Father. Even when he was deserted by his closest friends, even in those critical moments, the Father was with him as Jesus sacrificed his life. It was not apart from the will and the presence of the Father. And if you go back and read the Psalms in light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you will see how often the Messianic Psalms look forward to uh, the Christ, the Messiah, going through suffering and trial while being abandoned by his friends and yet still being able to reach out and to be comforted by the presence of God. Now Jesus tells them why he's been talking about all this stuff. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Ultimately, Jesus wants to prepare them to have peace. The peace that they can have even in the face of their grief and their sorrow. Peace despite what will happen to them. This world is full of trouble. As we have discussed previously in the way that Jesus teaches about the world being against his disciples and hating Jesus, and so they hate Jesus' disciples. But you can take heart. These disciples could take heart because they were not left on the chaotic waves of the world to be tossed to and fro like flotsam. Instead, the disciples of Jesus Christ are secured in God with great peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A peace like this that the psalmist says, Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. What peace, what joy do you need to have to be able to stand opposed by an army and not fear? To stand confident in the face of such overwhelming force. It is the peace and the joy that comes from God, the peace and the joy that comes through Christ who overcomes the world. Even though the whole world stand against him. And in some sense, it will be like that. In comparison to the number of people who come to Jesus and join his team, it will still feel like there are the great masses that oppose Christ. 
in the, in the, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, it talks about these, these images of battles and scenes where all the nations array themselves against God and His Christ, and yet their defeat is sure because Christ overcomes the world. Take heart, brothers and sisters, take heart. It might feel like we are on the losing side at times, and we see evil feeling like it's winning, like it is uh, taking the main stage, and like Christ is being suppressed and, and shoved out. Yet, even if we are one of 12 only Christians in the whole world, Jesus can still say, take heart because he has overcome the world. And so those 12 disciples, they would take heart. And after Jesus died and was resurrected, after the Holy Spirit opened their minds to understand, what did they do? These 12 guys, and I know there was some others associated, especially some very faithful women, but a very small group went out and took on the whole Roman Empire, took on the world, took on all the Jewish systems with this message of good news a message that went out and turned the world upside down, a message that eventually made that pagan Roman Empire a few centuries later turn around and go, actually, no, we are a Christian empire now. <laughs> a message that has come down through the ages and spread across to every continent and seen people from every tribe and tongue and, and nation come and turn to the living God. Or at least if it hasn't quite happened yet, it's pretty close. The gospel has gone almost everywhere. But that does not mean the mission is over. As we well know, there are still many who stand opposed to Christ and we are still out discipling the nations in Christ's name. But we can have peace because Jesus has overcome the world. There was an awful sorrow for those disciples. There's great sorrow for us to think about what has caused Christ to die on that cross. But it leads to joy. It leads to joy and a joy that is made full by what has been secured for us with God the Father. And we can ask Him that our joy may be full. We can go to Him through prayer and receive what is promised to us. And Jesus has overcome the world, so now you can have peace. Even if an army surrounds you, you need not have fear if you are in Jesus Christ. I want to finish with these words from Colossians as an encouragement to what we are to do. The, the temptation might be to go out and try and fix the world. But what does Paul encourage the Colossians to do? He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is, is what we're doing right now, this morning, as we teach and admonish one another through these words, as we sing these words and admonish one another. Singing is not just us all individually doing our own singing. We are encouraging and building each other up as we sing together and lift up our voices. It might feel like we need to go out and fix this and campaign for that, and make a stand on this. But as we gather on Sunday mornings, or whatever time we gather, and we sing and we let the word of Christ dwell amongst us, we are doing what we have been called to do. We are 
We are standing against the gates of hell here this morning, knocking and saying, give up your dead because they can find life in Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the peace that we can have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the joy that has been that has been given to us. And we pray, Lord, that we might know that joy, that it might not be an intangible thing that uh, is just off somewhere else, but rather we pray that that might be a joy that we know here and now. A joy that we know here and now as belonging to Christ. A joy that we know because we have asked you and you have given and supplied our need. Please, Lord, make our joy full. Lord, we pray that as we go through life and face the sorrows and trials, that you might enable us to walk through them knowing your joy, to find peace with you despite the difficulty that we face. Lord, we know that there is a, that we can have a peace that is beyond understanding. And we pray, Lord, that it, it might be a reality in our lives here and now, but also into eternity as we gather with you in eternal joy. Thank you when we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.